Leah Johnson gets to do what a lot of people only dream of. She writes books for a living. But you know what? It's not all milk and honey. When a thing that you love and are passionate about becomes a thing that you rely on to survive, there is a pressure associated with it that is hard to untangle. Dealing with that is tough, but according to Leah... It's also part of the work. This week on Interstates, Leah Johnson on writing as a job, on making stories for Midwestern Black girls, and her choice to write commercial fiction. And after that, producer Avi Forrest goes for a drive with comedian Katie Bowman. That's coming up right after this. Leah Johnson got her first book deal a month after she finished her creative writing degree. The book that resulted, You Should See Me in a Crown, was a Stonewall honor book, the inaugural Reese's Book Club young adult pick, and it got on the list of Time's 100 best young adult books of all time. Her second book is Rise to the Sun, and it's also a young adult book. Her latest came out on Tuesday, May 2nd. It's called Ellie Engel Saves Herself, and it's not a YA book. It's a middle-grade novel. In case you're not a librarian who pays attention to these distinctions, middle-grade fiction is directed toward 8- to 12-year-olds, whereas the audience for young adult novels is more like 12- to 18. Ellie Engel Saves Herself is about a kid who ends up with special powers just when you least want them, right before starting middle school. I met Leah at her house in Indianapolis, and we talked about her new book, about how when writing is your job, you actually have to get up and do it every day. We talked about money, writing commercial fiction in an MFA program, and how it really feels to join the list of writers whose books have been banned. As we sat down, though, we were chatting about the anti-trans bills that had been passing through the Indiana legislature. Before you showed up, I was sitting here looking at, so Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick recently like tweeted this video where um, they were talking about the drag bands. And underneath the tweet, it's so many bigoted, like idiotic responses about how like kids shouldn't be exposed to any any illustrations of of gender or performance that are outside of the binary or whatever. And I was just like, I I can't, sometimes I can't believe that people are coming at this from a genuine point of view. Like you legitimately believe that it's drag that's going to make a kid queer. Drag? Please, please. That's the thing. I'm like, if you would talk about it, if you would open up a genuine conversation with these children Mm -hmm. about what it means to be a human who exists on a spectrum of gender and sexuality and like all these things, then kids would, it's not going to make them queer. If they're going to be queer, they're queer. What it's going to do is make them happy and healthy and whole. I don't know. I feel like we're, we're in the middle of a really aggressive and strange cultural battle right now the likes of which like I have not seen in my adult life. And so I just, I don't know. I feel like the children are the battleground we're fighting on and and we're losing. I was thinking about that too. Like things have changed so much in the past 20 years, I would say. And the fact that there's so much more queer visibility and I think kids are like starting to actually feel like they can talk about how they actually feel and explore different options with who they want to be with or how they want to, you know, be in the world in relation to gender and sexuality and all that. It seems like it's a threat, like it's becoming a threat. And that is why people are clamping down. That's, (laughs) that's me trying to find something. It's, it's, it's very Bloomington. It's very Bloomington of you. And I love that. I love that. You know what? I think, um, Because I live up here. I live in Indianapolis, which doesn't seem like it's such a huge difference. It's only, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away. But the climate up here feels so aggressively different than it does when I go back to IU, which is my alma mater, or Sarah Lawrence, which is where I went to grad school. Like, those are places where 
for the first time in my life, I got the idea that it was okay to maybe be something other than what people had told me I was my entire life. And then I moved back here a couple of years ago. And I just, I noticed that like all the stuff that I was running away from still exists here. I was like, well, I was changing. This place was standing still. And so when I go, you know, to the far West side, which is much more rural, which is where I'm from, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I walk around out there and I'm like, oh my God, we are frozen in time. Like to you all, this discourse is still theoretical. You know, like to me, when you talk about what it means to be queer or drag shows, which I think is such a ridiculous hill to die on, but whatever, you know, like when we talk about that stuff to them, it's theoretical. It's, it's this like big, like behemoth. Oh, it's the, the thing lurking around every corner is these fanciful queers, but like, that's my real life. That's my real existence. And so like, I think that out there, especially people are still operating on this whole ideological playground but this is like my lived experience and i realized that it's my ability to live freely and safely up here is still very much at risk because of these people who have never met a queer person before or have and then can't quite square the idea that the arguments that they're making actually apply to this real human. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think we are a threat to them. I think anything that exists outside of the binary is a threat to them. But I also think that this is just another game of political theater. And just like last year, it was critical race theory. This year, it's drag bans. Next year, it'll be another marginalized group whose rights they want to take away. Like, to them, this is all part of a larger scheme to maintain power. But to us, this is our ability to live freely and without fear. So I'm really curious to talk about writing young adult novels in particular. But what I wanted to start with is, did you always want to be a writer? Yeah. So... The long and short answer is that growing up, I didn't think that it was possible to be somebody who wrote books professionally. I think at the time, especially because it wasn't so you didn't have such easy access to the writers you admire. I didn't have any concept of this as a job. And so I knew that I had a pretty narrow set of skills. I was good at performing. I was good at talking my way out of trouble. And I was good at making stuff up. And those all really come together to make a great writer, as it turns out. And so I knew that I wanted to tell stories, but I I couldn't sort of wrap my head around what it would look like to write books. And so I wanted to be a journalist. That was my goal. And so I was really into it in high school. I was like editor in chief of my school paper. And then I went to IU to be in the J school, which is now the media school. I had every intention of going on to work for NPR, actually. Like, that was my goal, was to work in public radio and do politics. And I got to my last year of school, and I just, I was doing a lot of reporting on race relations, which this is around the time of, like, Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin. And so we were in a flashpoint, I think, in the way we talk about race in this country. And because... It's Indiana. There's not that many black reporters. I felt like I was doing a lot of legwork of telling these stories over and over again. And I was good at it, which is why I really leaned into it. But it was costing me a great deal. I was so sad all the time. I was so anxious all the time. The last straw was like I went to New York to do an internship at the Wall Street Journal. And it's the Wall Street Journal. So it was like, you know, I got to work with some really cool people, but I also was part of a machine that I didn't really believe in. So when I came back to school, I was just like, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to be able to do this for the next 30 years of my life. So sort of as a Hail Mary, I was like, let's just go back to the thing that got us to love stories in the first place, which is books. I applied to some MFA programs and got in and I was on the first thing smoking in New York. That was it. (laughs) 
So then you're in your MFA program and you're writing, you're doing fiction. At what point do you realize that you want to do write young adult fiction? So I knew going into my program that I was going to write YA. It was really clear to me. It felt really resonant with where I was in my life. Yeah, YA was really the only thing I was interested in writing. I know a lot of people go into MFA programs and they're like, I'm going to write the next great American novel and I want to be the next you know, I don't even, who's fancy? Um, I want to be the next David Foster Wallace. And I was like, I just want to tell stories about kids falling in love and like, you know, going on adventures the summer before they go to college. And I think part of that was because I was so young. I was one of the youngest people in my program. I was 21 going into my program. But the other part of it was that I was just beginning to navigate my own queerness and think about what that would look like for me in practice. And I I think a lot of straight people, especially, you know, you get all your firsts out in high school. You get to have your first kiss, you get to have your first loves and your first heartbreaks and all this other stuff. But for queer people, a lot of that comes much later in life. And so because at that point in my life, I was just then beginning to experience like what it feels like to fall in love and what it feels like to get your heart broken and, and to actually like, hold hands with somebody that you don't feel deeply anxious about holding hands with because you know it doesn't quite fit. You know what I mean? And so those feelings, all those experiences felt so closely tied to what it feels like to be 16 again, that it felt really natural to write those sorts of stories for that time in my life. And so that's what I did from the moment I got there. And I think a lot of people couldn't quite wrap their head around why I would do that. You know, it's not, I think YA, especially in the era that I started writing it, it was still very much like people were holding on to this idea of the dystopian era. They were still thinking about YA being Twilight and The Hunger Games and Divergent, which 100% is what YA is. But also, a lot of people in my program believed that there was an inherent value to telling stories that people didn't understand or were not accessible or spoke to a really niche experience and was told in a way that was sort of like, you know, highfalutin. And I just am not interested in that. If I'm going to tell a story, I want to tell a story that people can see themselves in. They can find something to hold on to in it. And the day I got there, the assistant director of my program at the time they make you do an intake interview when you arrive. And she was like, okay, what is it you want to accomplish in this program? I said, by the time I leave, I want to have an agent. I want to get a book deal and I want to write full time. Those are my goals. I knew what I wanted. Okay. That's the thing. I think, I think people don't like when somebody can clearly articulate their, their dreams. Like, and not even their dreams, their goals. Like I knew I was going to do it. I was like, there's no, (laughs) to me, this is youthful naivete. To me, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be published. I was like, of course I am. (laughs) Why else would I be here? You know what I mean? And she was like, well, you know, we don't really, we don't really focus on that so much as we focus on the the craft of writing. And I said, sure. Do I want to be a great writer? Of course I do. Want, do I want to know the ins and the outs and the rules and the, and the technicalities? And do I want to engage with the work that's come before me? Sure. But also, I want to do this professionally. And so... My goals were very specific. And she said, okay, well, what is it you want to write? And I was like, well, I want to do YA. And she was like, oh, so you want to make money? And I was like, yeah, like, <laughs> like, why is that some crazy concept? Or like, it makes me less of an artist because I want to do stories that reach a wider audience. And also I want to be paid for it. Like, I don't understand what the disconnect was. And so, okay. Let me use this example. So like black folks, for example, always have to engage with white art. Like in addition to knowing the Toni Morrisons and the Alice Walkers and the James Baldwins, I also have to know the E.E. Cummings and the Whitmans and the David Foster Wallaces of the world. Whereas white people are not expected to engage with black art in the same way because it's not in the canon. 
Um, and that's racism, obviously. Um, but I felt similarly when I was in my grad program, I was like, I was doing this high wire act where I was like trying to engage with like white literary fiction that did not speak to my experience or my interests at all, while also trying to write young adult fiction for queer black kids in the Midwest. I was like, I felt like I was on an island. I was like, nobody is really, nobody's really hearing me. Nobody's getting what I'm trying to do here. And it wasn't until my second year when I was like, okay, I'm going to play the game that they want to play. And I'm going to, I'm going to write what I write, but I'm going to do it in a way that feels like highbrow literary fiction and that was when people were like oh my gosh oh wow she can write I could always write you guys just didn't have any respect for commercial fiction and so you weren't hearing it so um it was it was after that point I was like okay I know what I'm dealing with here I know what I'm working with so did you then keep doing that in the program or did you like kind of just do that for a minute to show them you could do it and then work on your actual plan? You know what? I did both of them. So when I had to submit something for workshop, it was in that style, in that tone. And it was a great exercise for me in terms of trying to diversify my own voice as a writer and expand and stretch to see what I was capable of. And so I found it really valuable and I was really good at it, as it turns out. But those were not the books that I wanted to publish. And I, I knew that that wasn't what I was going to end up publishing. And so I got my first book deal a month after I left my program. And it was for You Should See Me in a Crown. I had to shift gears pretty rapidly from like, okay, like, let's let's go back to the kissing books, Leah. Let's like get back in the zone because we got a job to do now. It was a different ball game for sure. But all the tools that I learned in that program about voice and structure and having a tightly plotted like story, all those things made their way back into You Should See Me in a Crown. My first few years of writing, I was writing a book every six months. Like I was finishing a manuscript like every six months. So I didn't have time for all that. I had to figure out how to get the plot, figure out what the story is, find the character and get them from point A to point B, like in 45,000 words, 60,000 words, whatever. And that's not something, that's not something they really shine at in literary fiction. (laughs) That's for sure. All right, let's take a break. You're listening to an interview with author Leah Johnson. Her first middle grade novel, Ellie Engel Saves Herself, came out on Tuesday, May 2nd. This is Interstates. When we come back, Leah talks about the relationship between writing and money. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and I'm talking today with author Leah Johnson. Her new book is Ellie Engel Saves Herself. When Leah got her first book deal, the schedule was for her to publish a book a year. And so first book came out in 2020, second book came out in 2021. And in an ideal world, I would have put out a book last year, Mm -hmm. but I didn't because I was burnt out. I didn't have anything left in the tank, especially, you know, navigating a global pandemic Mm -hmm. and just like the cost of being a human. It was draining. I was scheduled and had like signed contracts for, I think, four YA novels that were supposed to be published back to back to back. And I got my second book came out and the reception was not nearly as overwhelming as it was for my first book, which is fine. Sophomore books often go through that. And also we were knee deep in a pandemic. So who was buying books? But I realized after that, I was like, man, it took a lot out of me to write that book only for it to come out and like for me to not feel like I was being supported by my publisher and feel like it wasn't reaching the audiences that I I wanted it to reach or that I wrote it to reach. And so I needed some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. Luckily, by then I had like signed with a new agent who had 
renegotiated a lot of my contracts and had bought me some more time and also had like gotten me paid so that I could afford to not write a book a year. And that was, that was like a godsend. I feel like it gave me the space to really step back and examine what it is I'm trying to do and not for the sake of capitalism, not for the sake of like paying my rent, but for the sake of doing the work because I'm passionate about the work. I feel like it was, I can't remember when you wrote that essay about work, writing and work that basically where you were talking about like yes. writing is work. Oh and, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I was thinking about like, we have these, those of us who dream of being of writing or mm-hmm. making art or whatever, radio or whatever. It's hard not to imagine that there's a sense of disconnect from the money aspect, right. you know, that you can, that you're going to be able to kind of just create. You were writing in that essay about how mm-hmm. writing is work for you. Yes. And that's a really important thing for people to understand. And at the same time, what you were just saying to me was that you actually needed to also find a different relationship to it. It sounded yes. like. Yeah. You know what? I mean, it's worth noting that art and capitalism are intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so there is no relationship to my work that can exist separate from my desire to build a life for myself that is stable. And I think a lot of times we don't consider creative pursuits labor in the way that we consider other jobs labor. And it's especially tough, which is, I think, if I'm thinking of the right essay, I also wrote about the fact that I come from a really humble background of working class people. A lot of educators in my family, a lot of people who have done manual labor jobs, um, public servants, you know, like just, there's a lot of that. And so I think it was easy for me growing up and also like entering into this business to think, oh, my needs as a person aren't as important because the work that I'm doing is easier than the work these other people are doing. Yeah. Right. You've got this lucky chance to be creative in your work. And so maybe you shouldn't expect to get paid. Yeah. Oh, and I shouldn't complain about how hard it is because at least I'm not on an assembly line like my my uncle or, you know, I'm not in a classroom every day getting (laughs) getting cussed out by kids like my brother. And I'm not, you know, and the reality is the work looks very different and I'm really privileged to be able to do it. And I think it's worth acknowledging that there is a great amount of privilege that comes along with being able to do creative work. But it also is work. And so figuring out how to prioritize your needs as an artist while also figuring out like, okay, how can I make enough money to survive while also having a personal life and also having a private life, despite the fact that the lines between the personal and the public are very blurry for somebody who has a public facing career. Figuring out how to navigate those things is really difficult. And there's not a guidebook for it. It's not like this is such a common job that people can give you, can give you a a blueprint. And so, yeah, I needed money so I could buy myself time to figure it out. Yeah. Shout out to to the mouse. Shout out to the mouse. Because if it weren't for Disney, who knows? (laughs) Who knows what I'd be doing right now? my book deal with Disney was worth seven figures. And so when you make a million dollars for a couple books, you can like be comfortable. And I don't shy away from talking about money because I was raised poor. And I think when income inequity is like shrouded in mystery, it makes it impossible for us to figure out where we're at and what other people are making and how we can get there and how we can financial plan and all this other stuff. So yeah, my career is made possible by the fact that I got a huge influx of money, which was part strategy and part luck. And that bought me a year where I could take some time to be creative without the specter of poverty hanging over my head. 
I was talking with this friend Mm -hmm. and a friend of his had said, you know, you just wrote some, all you had to do was write some poems and you got this job or whatever, whatever. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, wow, wow. (laughs) But the point is that like, it is actual work to write a book, to write something, to, to do creative work. You actually do have to like sit down and struggle and push through and finish things. Yeah. I mean, I have to show up every day the same way anybody else does. I, I get a question a lot when I do school visits from kids who like they want to be writers when they grow up and they're like, how do you deal with the writer's block? And I'm like, well, just the same way anybody wakes up in the morning and sometimes does not feel motivated to go to work or doesn't feel like they have the wherewithal to like show up as their full self once they get to work. It's the same thing with me. I mean, the difference is I'm my own boss. And so there's nobody behind me being like, yo, pick it up. So, but the, but the reality is like, I still have a obligation to show up to the work every day, even when I don't feel well equipped to do it. And part of that is because I'm on some pretty tight timelines and other people it's different. You have longer between books. You get to sort of languish in that state of like not really knowing what you want to do and what you're doing. I don't have that. So a lot of the work is writing garbage and hoping that in the revision stage, I can be better than garbage (laughs) or that my editor is, she's coming to work. Like she's, she's firing on all cylinders at all times. And so if I'm coming with not my best, then there are other people around me who I can rely on who are also coming to work and doing what needs to be done. Yeah, it's tough, but I mean, it's a job. It's just, I do the job like over a little keyboard and other people do their jobs out in the world. You know what, can I say this real quick? This, you know what, honestly, if writing was the only part of my job that I had to do, I actually feel like this would be a different conversation, but this is the job. What we're doing now, this is work. When I go to schools and talk about my books and like meet with kids and sign copies, that's work. When I go on tour in a few weeks, eight cities in 12 days, that's work. When I do Zooms with libraries in Nebraska, that's work. And so social media for me is work now because it's all part of the the brand. And so it's just different. It's hard to wrap your head around, I think, if it's not part of your life, but I'm always on the clock. I think other people get to clock in and out. I'm always on. That too is like one of those things that I am trying to square, I think, in my relationship with labor. How do I articulate this? When a thing that you love and are passionate about becomes a thing that you rely on to survive, there is a pressure associated with it that is hard to untangle. And so figuring out how to navigate that is tough, but it's also part of the work. I am curious to hear about the shift from writing these, the first two books, which were more like YA to Ellie Engel, which is middle grade. And what did you have to think about differently? Like, I felt like you totally had, you did have that, what did you say, baby gay panic? Yeah. <laughs> energy? Yes. Like, that totally came through in Ellie Engel yeah. also, really wonderfully. You. But you did have to, you know, it's a, it's a very different book. It f- reads very differently. Huge tonal shift. Exactly. I'll say this about Ellie. I started working on it in spring of 2021, and we were still in quarantine. I was so disillusioned with writing as a career. I sort of was like ready to tap out and go back to the classroom um, because I'm a professor when I'm not writing. And I just did not, I wasn't seeing a way forward. And I was like, I got to work on something that's going to make me feel excited to sit down and write every day again. And so I was like, I'm just going to do a nonsense little story about a queer 
kid from Indiana who gets superpowers. And the goal was really just to have fun. I was like, I want to be able to play in the work again. Something that is true of romance, even when you're writing for young people, is that there are certain conventions of the genre that you have to adhere to. Otherwise, it's not considered a romance, but it also is not going to check the boxes for the readers. Romance readers are very specific about what they want, and rightfully so. I get it. There's a science to it, and I am a scientist. But I was a little exhausted of trying to hit those same beats at the time. So I just wanted to do something goofy and play around a little bit. And as is the Leah Johnson way, the goofiness gave way to a much more earnest story about a kid trying to understand their identity through superpowers being sort of an allegory for getting a new life as a queer person when you come out. And I knew really early, I was like, man, this is going to be a book. I can't, it is not, I can't even, I thought it was just going to be a little jokey joke. I was going to just have a good time, just me and my little story. And I like worked on it for a weekend furiously. And I sent the first 30 pages to my agent after two days, which never happens. And she was like, Okay, I wasn't expecting this. I thought you were working on a YA novel, the one we talked about, but I think we could sell this. Let's take it out next week. And we took it out on proposal the next week, truly. And that was it. Like we we went to auction with it. And then within two weeks, we had the deal for Ellie. Unbelievable and unprecedented. It has never happened to me like that before and who knows i mean i will say my most recent deal also had a similar sort of story but you know who knows if it'll happen again after that (laughs) that's a long answer to your question but the the short answer is there is a playfulness in middle grade that i have i felt like i was losing when i was writing ya and that's not to say that ya is not playful because it is but it's just that like The questions 12-year-olds are asking are very different than the questions a 17-year-old is asking. And I like that space of curiosity without, it's a sort of curiosity without shame, you know? Mm -hmm. I really value that in younger readers. My first goal is to make sure the people, Black girls in particular, who are growing up where I grew up, can see themselves and their communities reflected accurately with superpowers. And that is, that is like hard to explain to people sometimes, I think, but I've been really lucky that I get to do it. I'm interested in being a part of a canon of Midwestern literature that really, really speaks to life in the Midwest in a way that is honest about our failures, but also the beauty of what it means to be from here. I'm really honored that I get to do the work in the way that I do it and do it alongside so many other incredible Hoosier writers. I do want to talk about book bans. And I'm curious, like, is there... This one is sure to be banned, surely, positively, 100%. No doubt about it. I'm kind of curious, like, is there... Not in terms of what it says about society, but in terms of like you being sort of in this group, does it, is there an element of like, maybe it feels kind of good? Oh, this is a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because there is this narrative that getting a book band is a badge of honor and that it in turn results in like higher book sales because people love controversy. So if your book gets banned, a lot of people are going to like run out and buy it. They're going to go to Barnes and Noble and they're going to pick up a copy. And the reality is much more (laughs) insidious. And that's that most people who get books banned, nobody ever hears about. You never see those books again. They go out of print. The authors are not famous. They're mid-list authors, which is like not 
not getting huge resources from their publishers. They don't always have huge fan bases. And so the books just disappear and that's it. And those authors don't always get another shot because our ability to sell books to publishers depends on our ability to get people to buy the books. And so it's a really, really nasty cycle that is much less cool and sexy than I think a lot of people make it seem. My next YA is co-written with a friend of mine named George M. Johnson, who wrote the book All Boys Aren't Blue, which was the second most banned book in the country this year. And George spends so much time talking about the importance of keeping books on shelves and making sure that young people have access to diverse literature. And George flies from city to city and they do all this really important work. But sometimes I I think about this quote from Toni Morrison where she says that racism and like talking about race, talking about like why we deserve to be in any given space is a distraction. It serves as a distraction from our ability to actually do the work. And luckily, somebody like George, George is an activist. They are energized by this and all that manages to be channeled back into their work. But for people who are less popular than George, people for whom their books get banned and nobody ever talks about them again, and they don't get invited to speak on panels and come do events, for those people, it's just a distraction from the work. It just makes it impossible to sit down and write the stories that you know you should be writing, knowing that they're going to be banned one day and nobody's gonna read them, and people are gonna call you a groomer or a pedophile, or you're gonna get your invitations to schools canceled because they saw you said trans rights matter or whatever on the internet. It's a real nasty, nasty, nefarious side of the business. That's the long answer. The short answer is getting my book banned. I am in the company of writers that I greatly admire and whose work got me here. It feels trite to say that I stand on the shoulders of giants, but I do. And so being able to look at my book on a list of books that are being considered indecent um, alongside Toni Morrison, I mean, if they think Toni Morrison is indecent, come on, I don't stand a chance. So in that way, I do know that my work is being banned because it's doing the work that they so want to silence. And I am proud of that. I'd be more proud if it wasn't getting banned, but (laughs) but I am proud to know that I'm doing work that scares people. You're writing books that are on some level, especially for those of us who don't necessarily feel scared of reading about queer Black relationships, feel like kind of classic romances. Yes, they are. (laughs) romances that's the thing I am so deeply influenced by all of the greatest rom-coms of our time which is why if you read you should see me in a crown it feels like a John Hughes movie because it was written to feel like a John Hughes movie because I want to be a part of the same canon the same way we talk about pretty and pink the same way we talk about never been kissed the same way we talk about 13 going on 30 whatever like I believe that my book is right in line with that. Um, Which is why when people slap labels on it, like, you know, to say it's indecent, I'm like, what's indecent about it? Name it. You tell me what exactly is indecent about this. Because when you do, you're going to have to identify that what you're actually talking about is queerness. The very existence of queer people is indecent to you. Because when we talk about banning books, we're not talking about taking books off the shelves. We're talking about the removal of queer people from public life. That is the ultimate goal here. And that's the same thing we're talking about when we talk about drag bans. It's the same thing we're talking about when we say that trans kids should be outed to their parents in schools. What you're talking about is not about protecting children. You want queer people erased. And so... My work is intended to boldly assert that we are not going anywhere 
we are your neighbors. We are your teachers. We are your politicians. We are the writers that shape the cultural conversation. We're not getting erased, no matter how many times you try to take our books off the shelves. So, I mean, sure, keep fighting, but there is not a group of people in the world better equipped to take down fascists than marginalized people because we've been doing it for centuries. That's pretty good. That was good. That was good. All right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Okay, now I can stop recording. Author Leah Johnson, her latest book, Ellie Engel Saves Herself, came out in May. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, producer Avi Forrest takes a comedian for a drive. Stay with us. My name is Avraham Forrest. I'm a reporter for WFIU Public Radio and the Interstates podcast. I would love to interview you about your comedy and your work. Hi. OMG, of course, I would love to. Let me know some dates that would work for you, and I could do it over Zoom. I don't know if you have any interest in getting me from the airport, but I do get in later the morning that Thursday. Smiley face. Hey, Alex, do we have a car? Welcome to The Comedians, a series about comedians. This time we have the fantastic Katie Bowman, who I'm currently picking up from the Indianapolis International Airport. Why? Because I thought it would be fun. Anyway, she's going to talk about being herself, being queer, and doing all of that while being very, very funny. Hey! I'm Katie, nice to meet you. So great to meet you. My car's kind of a mess. Oh my gosh, I have, is this a Honda CRV? Yeah. I yeah. have the same car. Yeah. Do you want me to just throw this in the trunk? Yeah, yeah, either one works. Ooh, it's so much hotter than Denver. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get this off. Okay. That makes so much more sense. I was all the way in there. So I was like, what is happening? This airport is horrible. <laughs> For a little bit, I wanted to try and do stand-up. Honestly, we need more people that are not cis men in stand-up, so just keep, if you want to do it, the best thing you can do is rip the band-aid off and do it. I can't tell you how many times I'm on a lineup where like I'm the only like not dude on the show, and I'm like, oh hey, this is fine. I'm not saying that any of them are bad or anything. It's just like fun when, I don't think guys, like I don't think like cis men realize how isolating it is when you're the only queer person or the only woman on the show or female identifying person and I feel like when I get to do a show with another person that is like either trans queer or female whatever but like just not cis man <laughs> like I feel like I feel so like alive and it's so fun and it, and it also I think gives the audience more of and like it opens it up a little bit more to that perspective so i'm not like digging myself out of this like manhole that i'm surrounded in yeah. if i'm the only woman on the show i'll always be like i'm the comedic vagine on the scene 
because I'm like, come on, like it's 2023. Why can't you book more than one woman or queer person on the show? Like, <laughs> and, and if I may ask, how do you identify? I so I, I am like pansexual. I feel like. Oh, dude, come on! He's in a big truck. <laughs> Don't worry. I, th- I, I think every person in a big truck should be, should act like Bob the Builder or like your fun trucker uncle and not be. I know, cool. and not be mean. <laughs> Earlier we talked about um, mindsets and like, are you a comedian because you have a better mindset or do you have a better mindset because you're a comedian? Like, okay, so like when I was a little kid, I always loved like comedy related stuff. Um, I was more into sketch comedy. Uh, I watched a lot of like SNL and I always loved all the crazy cartoons and stuff like that. And, like I watched some stand up and then I think I, I didn't really start watching stand up until I was in like high school because I didn't really watch. My parents wouldn't let us have that much TV time and when we did watch TV it would be like Nickelodeon and Disney you know yeah. <laughs> so I think I got like away from it for a while and then there'd be a couple times where we'd watch Comedy Central and I remember she's like on the tip of my tongue and I'm like forgetting it right now but I just remember this comedian a female comedian like talking about how she was growing up and I was like oh that's so relatable like I want to talk about all the weird how I'm different because I was always different when I was young like I grew up in Dallas Texas and I was like a chubby little redhead and like everyone else around me was like a pageant star. (laughs) I just never had access to improv classes or stand up or anything. And then I went on a date. This was like after I graduated college, I went on a date and I went to an improv show and I was like, oh man, like I'm not into this date, but I feel like I could do this. And like, (laughs) is this how you do like the stuff I see on TV? You know what I mean? Like it all clicked together. And little did I know that like it's so common. A woman will date a comedian or go on a date with a comedian or an improviser and be like, wait, I can do this. (laughs) I was doing more improv when I started and then a little bit after I started, I did open mics and then I just couldn't decide between the two. And then I think with time, I realized like stand up was more of my strong suit. But I also still love doing improv if I get invited to like do it just because it's fun to like play like that. You know, it's like being a little kid again. Um, but I just can't make it to all the rehearsals and stuff that I would have done back when I was still doing it hardcore. And I also had this like weird traumatic experience with this guy when I was doing improv. Like he put his head under my dress on stage. What? I know. Ew. And like, luckily I had shorts on, but like, yeah, it was literally like the fear of like, oh, I don't want anyone to see my vagina. And also <laughs> like you can mime that. That's yeah. Not, that's like, not you know, hard to mime. Well, and like, it doesn't. One of the things you learn in improv classes is like, hey, like there's not like you can, they always say you can break the rules, but just a general starters rule, like don't have sex on stage and don't do childbirth because it just never turns out as great as you think it's going to be. And literally, yeah. and like it, there's not money moving parts to it. You know, it's one thing to be like on the sidelines making like sex sounds while someone's like doing a scene in a room versus like acting out a sex scene it just doesn't move anywhere with that yeah. kind of a thing unless you can be but unless you're like so close to the partner that you feel like you've talked about this you guys know where you can go with it you find like a great angle yeah but a lot of the time it's not that yeah i think this is it <gasps> oh my gosh we are here. Okay, I'm so excited there's a pool. I Ooh. always bring a swimsuit whenever I travel. Okay, do you mind if I ask you like one last question? Yes, of course. Um, what's something that you want people to know about you? Oh, um, I want people to know that I am a huge open heart and all I'm here, I just want to share like the same energy with people. I want to like open each other's hearts up and connect with people. That's like my biggest goal on stage is I want people to be like, oh my God, I feel that. You know, like that's like my favorite thing that people say to me when I get off stage. That was the wonderfully funny Katie Bowman. She was in Bloomington to perform in the Limestone Comedy Festival. You can follow her on Instagram at Katie Bowman Comedy.
producer Avi Forrest. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. And hey, if you like the show, you can review and rate us on your favorite podcast app. And what's even more fun than that is telling a friend. All right, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Leah Johnson and Katie Bowman. All right, time for some found sound. fourth and fifth graders eating lunch, recorded by Kate Young. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.